Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Intercooler Podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast, and JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars, and importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic, sports car, supercar, or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 101. Um, Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Andrew, now we're talking about innovation and perhaps also a little yes. bit of rule bending in motorsport. Yes, um, yes. I wonder ins- why. Inspired by uh, the updated Mercedes W13 F1 car. Can you explain, please, uh, for people who might not know? Uh, well, not really, no, because that would that would presuppose that I had some understanding of the current <laughs> F1 rulebook, which I don't. But okay, all I do know uh, is that um, at the first uh, preseason test at Barcelona, they turned up with one car. They appeared to have turned up in Bahrain with another. Uh, and the thing about it is, it's basically it's got no side pods, um, which I think means it, I mean it's clearly a packaging miracle because of all the stuff that you got to stick into those side pods, the pipes and the radiators and this, that, and the other. Um, which I presume means it's going to be a, it's it's not going to have much drag at all. So I presume it, the idea is is that it's just going to be a really really quick car. And I think the crucial thing is that nothing gets in the way of the airflow um, to the back of the car. Um, and there is some aperture, some square shaped aperture that's meant to be there which isn't. Um, and this has sent the paddock into paroxysms of outrage um christian horner in particular um who gave an interview to outer motor and sport um 
saying that he thought these uh, the what Mercedes had done was outside the spirit of the regulations. Um, I think Red Bull then denied it and then said, "Okay, it wasn't an official comment." Um, but I don't think <laughs> well, it is though. Denied- it is if it comes from your team principal, it's an official comment. <laughs> you know, uh, he wasn't speaking in his official capacity. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What I do know is it's a joke. I mean, of all people. Well, of all teams, certainly, the team that employs Adrian Newey, who has sailed closer to the regulatory wind than any other designer in the modern history of, of racing, um, and quite rightly so, um, to say, oh, it's not in the spirit of the regulations. And, and you know, as, as I put in a tweet, you know, if Adrian had gone to Christian Horner with that idea, do you think Christian would have gone, well, that's a really good idea, Adrian, but I just don't think it's really in the spirit of the regulations, so we'll park it. <laughs> he would have gone, bring it on. And that's the point, isn't it? These are regulations. They don't have spirits. That's why they're regulations. And, you know, the whole part of the game is, it's like, you know, everybody tries to buy themselves an advantage, whether it's with a more powerful engine or with a better driver. And, this, and you know, the rule book is the same. You take what you're given and you do the most you can with it. And if the car is not illegal, if the rules are bent, squeezed, stretched, don't matter. As long as it's not, <laughs> they're not actually broken, you can do it. And Red Bull would be the first, and given all the stuff that's gone on, would be the absolute first to acknowledge that. And, you know, and, and to me, if, and I don't think, even think we've seen that yet, maybe by the time this goes out on Monday, um, Mercedes will have banged in some amazing time. As we're, as we're recording this on Friday morning, um, it hasn't shown itself to be any faster yet, um, but maybe no. they haven't tried to go fast with it. But um, if they have happened to steal a march over the entire F1 grid, well, you know, good luck to them. They just and as long as it's legal, yeah. And yeah, as long as it's it, legal, no one has any grounds for complaint at all. If it's, a, <laughs> if it's illegal, if it does break the rules, I mean, even Ross Braun, even Ross Braun, I mean, the man behind the double diffuser, yeah, um, which, was ex- which was another brilliant interpretation of the rules, um, which basically gave Braun the world championship in 2009, well, with a Mercedes engine, of course. Um, even Ross Braun said this was an, an extreme interpretation of the rules. Fine interpret them as extremely as you like as long as you're not actually breaking them you know don't matter um i, I don't I, I suspect there might be something else going on here I, because <laughs> i'm not really usually conspiracy theorist but i, I love the idea of uh, and ross used to do this with braun in 2009 when they when he realized that the car was so competitive um and he told me this once they'd stick stuff on it which didn't do anything at all <laughs> just to play with the minds of the other teams and the rule was if it, yeah, as long as it didn't make the car slower or less reliable you could put it on the car and so they stick this down and everybody would go oh my god what's this they come up with and they go and analyze it and all this is taking up time of your opponents um and distracting them um and i don't know if there's not an element of that in what mercedes is up to um it's certainly if, if the intention was to wind up red bull and who knows goodness knows after the back end of last season you know you'd understand why mercedes might want to do that then it's job done isn't it yeah and you know we can talk about the spirit of the regulations but the there spirit are, of no f1 and the spirit of f1 at least from a designer's point of view that's what this is all about in terms of rules and being creative and red herrings, yeah. perhaps, that throw your rivals off the scent. I think there is also some discussion around the legality of the mirrors. Um, and apparently there is an agreement that mirror supports will not be used as wings. Um, so I think some teams are unhappy about that. But the FIA has said so far that there's nothing illegal on that car. And it might yet be that one team or another, <laughs> guess which one it might be, objects 
Um, and then there, I guess there has to be an investigation. And actually, if eight teams object to something, the rules can be rewritten. So this is, it's a dynamic thing. It's in, it's in flux, isn't it? So it's, hang on. So, so, if everybody, so if you do something which is completely legal and completely brilliant and you spend a huge amount of time and resource over the winter because you've had this brilliant idea, if all the other teams go, we didn't think of that, then they can render all that work useless. I, pre- I, presume, I presume there has to be grounds for it. Maybe there's something must be. that, there must that be. contravenes the rules. We don't like or, that car because it's quicker than ours. Yeah. I'm sure there's a mechanism that stops it just being about... I mean, I, I, mean, I guess the big problem with this season, uh, and again, I don't know the ins and outs of the regs, um, but because it's the start of the new rules regime and so much of the design of the car is kind of fixed... Uh, it may be that they are pretty limited as to what they as, as to how they'll be able to respond to it. Um, mm. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I, um, and you know, you could have one of these terrible situations where, and I'm not saying this is the case at all because we haven't seen any evidence for the car speed yet. Not certainly as we record this. But you know, if Mercedes has really stolen the march, it could be game over before the season starts. Yeah, and the key thing is, it's all about engine packaging, isn't it? Powertrain packaging. And if you can't, you, you can't just totally redesign that in a season, I wouldn't have thought. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, if, it's, if it turns out to be a huge advantage, then that's just going to yeah. compound throughout the year. There was a, a, this amazing shot of the Aston Martin, which has the Mercedes power unit with the rear bodywork removed. And you see these enormous compartments on the side where the AirPods are. They look like luggage compartments. And I thought, and I tweeted this, that car's got more storage capacity than my A110. Um, so... <laughs> I, I, there's something curious. Why wouldn't Aston Martin have created similar side pods to shrink wrap around that power unit? Uh, maybe know. because they thought that they couldn't. Uh, maybe yeah. that, I don't know. I don't. You know, maybe thought people just thought you can't do that because they thought the mm. rules stopped you doing it. So I mean, I don't. I don't. I mean, if it's illegal, chuck it out. Absolutely, yeah. chuck it out. Um, yeah. But you can't chuck it out because the other teams don't like it. <laughs> No, that um, shouldn't be how it works. They, they kick up a fuss. No, it shouldn't, no. I mean, you know, the rules are the rules, and if they break, chuck it out. If not, let them race. Good. Okay, well, we, we're actually not going to talk in too much detail about how the side pod design works and so on. There'll be others who I, do I'm that better. I'm so glad about that. <laughs> but we are, we are going to just use this as a, a sort of an excuse to talk about innovation and rule bending in motorsport because there are some brilliant examples of it through history. Um, and it's at this moment we don't know if Mercedes' interpretation of the rulebook here is going to work in its favour or not. So we're not just going to talk about the innovation and the rule bending that's led to championship winning success. We're going to, we've got a few flops that we're going to talk about as well because I don't know the zero pod or the the hide pod as some have called it. That the might non-pod. turn out to be a flop. The non pod that yeah. might turn out to be a flop. So we'll have to wait and see until the first race of the season, won't we? Which is not far away. Um, so yeah, this is we're going to be talking about slipping through the regulatory net, finding and exploiting loopholes, which actually for me is what F1 and racing car design is all about. Um, you're going to get us underway, Andrew. You're, you've, <laughs> you've sent me an enormous list. Um, yes. We're not, we're not going to get through all of them, but I do want to talk about number one on your list, um, which is the 1939 Mercedes W165. Yeah, okay. Before we do that, can I talk about number zero, which isn't on the list, because I only thought of it this morning. <laughs> okay, we'll okay. start at zero. Uh, but but, it, but it, it does directly relate to this. Um, 
because, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people know, in uh, Grand Prix racing in the late 1930s, Auto Union and particularly Mercedes-Benz were just like so much better than anybody else. Um, people wondered why they turned up because they produced these insane cars. I mean, the W125 um, had a 5.6 litre supercharged engine which developed 646 horsepower in 1937. <laughs> it would be the yes. turbo era of Formula One before Grand Prix cars had more power than that. And so how do you beat that? Well, okay, so, so, so the first thing I want to talk about is Alfa Romeo's answer to that, which absolutely didn't work, but it was just brilliant. They only had an engine. So this Mercedes had this enormous 5.66 litre engine. Um, and, and the biggest engine Alfa Romeo had was, I think, three, was a 3.2. So their brilliant idea was, we'll use two of them. <laughs> and they produced yeah. this thing called the Bimotore. And it had an engine in the front and it had an engine in the back. Um, oh and God, it produced a, amazing power. Um, but it was just rear-wheel drive, uh, and the, I, mean, I think it was quite cumbersome, I think it was quite heavy, uh, and I do know it had a particular problem, that it would just, it would eat tyres within minutes of starting to race, but it was just, um, that's a kind of like a desperation response, isn't it? You know, we must do something, this is something, therefore we must do it. Um, and I think, they, I think they made two, at least one of them still survives, and I think somebody's made a replica, but yeah, I just didn't want to carry on without at least doffing my cap yeah. to the Alfa Romeo Baimotore. So, yes, uh, the W165, as a direct response to this total Mercedes domination, um, That's familiar. for the Tripoli Grand Prix in 19, uh, 1939, uh, Libya at that time was an Italian protectorate. And the people who were being hammered most by um, the, the dominance of the Germans were, were the Italians, uh, Alfa Romeo and Maserati in particular. Uh, and so they thought that they would just arrange it so that there was no way um, the Italians, uh, the Germans could win. And so they said, OK, we're going to make for this particular Grand Prix, we're going to make it a one and a half litre race. So if you haven't got a car with one and a half litre engine, you can't come. And Mercedes didn't. Um, and they thought that was fantastic. So, you know, the Maseratis will come, and it'll be great, and it'll be an Italian victory and an Italian protectorate, and bish, bash, bosh. Unbeknownst to them, in, like, no time at all, Mercedes thought, well, we're not taking this line down, we'll just design one. In months. And so they created, in months, this little exquisite jewel of a car. And the specification, one and a half litre V8, four overhead mm-hmm. camshafts, four valves per cylinder. This is before the war. Four valves per cylinder, four overhead camera shafts, supercharged. Um, they made two cars. They went and they did that one race. They came first and second, and they never raced again. <laughs> Completely new car. Just because, that was amazing. Just out of spite, just out of sheer, you know, sod you. We're not going you know, to be ruled out because you don't, you don't like us because we've done our job better mm. than you. Um, if that's what you're going to do, well, well, we'll play to those rules and we'll still beat you. And they did. That- there was an echo of that last year. So the point about the Tripoli, Tripoli GP in 1939 was that the regulations were totally rewritten in an effort to stop Mercedes winning. Yes. Um, and in 2021, in F1, we know we've got new regulations that, um, that are cut away in the floor, um, which was actually specifically designed to hurt Mercedes. Um, and yet they still won the constructors' title. So... Yeah, not quite as extreme as that 1939 car, but there's an entire new car. Yeah, I thought I yeah. thought that was extraordinary. Yeah, that's brilliant. And oh, sorry, yeah, just on that, uh, I did drive it once. I did drive the winning oh. car. Mercedes wow. brought it over to um, the Festival of Speed, and b- 
because it was designed to do one race, all the bits that exist for that car are in the car. There are no spares. It's still the same everything with which it won that race. Now, they've had the engine apart and they've cleaned it up and, and, and it's fine. And so, but you can imagine this thing was just like everything was bespoke. It was unique to that car. Um, and when I drove it, I, you, know, you can imagine I was just, I was so tentative and so nervous. Mm. Um, and the Mercedes guys were going, no, you can't do that. It's a Grand Prix car. It's a 1930s Grand Prix car. You can't drive it like that. You have to drive it. And I was talking to them about how to get it off the line. And they said, spin the wheels, spin the wheels. <laughs> so I did. So I just gave it everything. I gave it like eight and a half hours and dropped the clutch and off we went. And if you drove it like that, it was fine. It's fine, Good as yeah. gold. Goodness Hated me. being driven slowly. Just wood couldn't be driven slowly. It just, it just couldn't do it. Um, so yeah. Anyway, what on um, earth is that thing worth? Best not think oh. about it if you're about to drive the thing. Um, okay. All right. Let's clip along a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think we can rattle this one off quite quickly. Jaguar C-type disc brakes. I mean, yeah. We're, this isn't just about rule bending, is it? It's about innovation in racing, and that is as good an example as any, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, everybody knew the disc brake was fantastic because it had been around for a long time in aircraft. Um, it was just a much more efficient um, way of, of losing speed. It didn't, you didn't suffer the fade that you got um, with drum brakes because the heat didn't build up inside the drum because there wasn't a drum, you know, and everybody. But no one could make a disc brake go around a corner. Um, you know, it, it, aircraft, they, they use their disc brakes kind of once every flight. Um, and they only travel in a straight line, so it's easy. Um, and Jaguar, particularly, um, and Dunlop, um, and guys like Norman Jewis and Sterling Moss, um, they perfected it. And yeah, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be quick with this because I think everybody knows the story. In 1953, they went to Le Mans uh, with a C type fitted with disc brakes. Um, and um, Tony Rolton, Duncan Hamilton um, dusted the lot. And, you know, it was simply a matter of time after that before every single racing car from then on and for all eternity was, was fitted with discs. So there you go. Okay. Okay, good. Right, we're a year later now, but back to Mercedes. Yeah. Um, W196. Yeah. Now, there are two reasons that this car was a proper innovator or a bit of a rule bender. Um, you only listed one reason. So if you can give us that, I'll jump in with the second. Uh, the, okay, so this was Desmodronic valve gear. Um, one of the reasons that uh, that car was... I'm just trying to figure out what, your, what the second one is that you're going to come up with. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but uh, yeah, it, basically, it didn't have valve springs. Um, the limiting factor in many engines, particularly back then, as to how fast you could spin it, um, was um, the frequency of response of the valve springs. And... You know, if you went beyond what the valve strings would tolerate, uh, you got pistons meeting valves and expensive noises and retirements from motor races. And so Desmodronic valve gear, instead of having a valve spring, it has, it's a mechanically operated valve. So it literally mechanically picks up the valve, which means you could spin it much higher. Um, and the result is higher revving, more power, but also much greater reliability. It was very, very difficult to break. Um, and well, one thing we do know about uh, the Mercedes in, in, in that, and it was in obviously the W196 Grand Prix car and the very closely related 300 SLR sports car, um, is that they were very fast and they hardly ever broke. Um, and so, yeah, over to you. Okay, well, there was another version of the W196, and that was the Type Monza. Oh, oh, this the Strömlinger, the Streamliner. Yeah, which is yeah. unusual because it's it was a Formula One car, but it had closed yep. wheels, so it looks like a sports yes. car, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely um, right. Yeah, 
and they, they called it the Type Monza, and it won three F1 races, three championship F1 races, the 54 uh, French Grand Prix and the 54 and 55 Italian Grand Prix, um, all with Fangio. So he, it helped Fangio to the 54 title, his second, um, and it remains the only car, the only um, car with the only F1 car with closed wheels to win in F1 history. Um, yeah, and and if you think about where it raced in yeah. France at Reims and Monza, mm. um, pretty much the two fastest tracks um, in Grand Prix racing at that time. Yeah, very um, very low drag car, so it's just yeah a rocket down the straights. And it's unusual when you yeah. see photos of it on the F1 grid alongside a load of open wheel F1 cars. It just it looks like a sports car in an F1 race. It's yeah. really odd. Fangio hated it actually, and I think they I think I may be wrong. I think they raced it at Silverstone in '54 as well. Um, and it didn't work because um, back then I think the courses are like sort of laid out with oil drums and that sort of thing. And Fangio mm. kept on clouting them because you couldn't see the corners of the car. You couldn't see where the car ended, um, yeah. and he didn't like it. But somewhere like Monza, uh, and particularly Reims, which is just basically straight connected by a very small number of corners, fantastic. Okay. Oh, we're a year later again. God, this was an era for racing, wasn't it? The fifties. We're at nineteen fifty-five. Um, number four on your list. Can you pick up the story, please? Amazing looking car. Uh, okay, I haven't got it. I haven't got my list in front of it. Are you talking about the the Nardi? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This I think this comes under the category of flop. Um, <laughs> the the, 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 Mighty, the 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 Nardi Bicelluro. Go look it up. I mean, again, it's a cracking idea. It's basically, yeah. if you think of a catamaran, um, it's an automotive racing version of that. So you have two booms, um, and in one side you put a driver, and in the other side you put the engine. So the car's like <laughs> perfectly balanced, um, and this had a little 750cc engine. And I think the thing was, and it was incredibly aerodynamic, it was so slippery, and it was so light. And I think it was a great concept, but I mean, it, it raced... It certainly raced at Le Mans in 55, which people tend to remember, understandably, for fairly tragic reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, it didn't work because it was literally, and I do mean literally, it was blown off the track by a passing D-type Jaguar. Really? Because although it was incredibly aerodynamically slippery, um, mm. I don't think it was desperately stable, as a lot of aerodynamically very slippery cars tend not to be. Um, and so, yeah, that's what happened. It was literally, it was blown off the track. I don't think anything happened to it, but um, it was a kind of great idea, wow. but uh, probably greater in theory than in reality. Yeah, so it, it raced at Le Mans in 55. It looks like two cigar tubes sort of strapped together or almost like a motorcycle and sidecar. It's, a, it's an unusual looking thing. Um, okay, let's clip along a little bit. So, yeah, you've also mentioned the 1957 Cooper T43, the, fir- the, the first mid-engined F1 car. Um, yeah. And it won with Sterling Moss driving the, the 58 Argentine Grand Prix. Um, yeah. Okay, let, let's keep moving though, because there's one number seven on your list I really want to talk about. Number six, by okay. the way. So, is so, so just, just, just on the Cooper, and the reason we should be quick about it is although it was the first mid engine car in Formula One, it wasn't the first mid engine Grand Prix car because Auto Union were doing mid engine Grand Prix cars in the 1930s. Um, and, it, it, and I've always puzzled as to why that wasn't carried forward. Mm. Um, because, well, we know about, you know, low polar moments of inertia and reduced frontal area and everything, all the benefits that mid-engine cars bring. Um, but it was the first mid-engine um, Formula One car. It did change the course of Formula One history. You know, in 1957, it was the only one. By 1961, every single car on the grid was mid-engine. So, you know, I just thought we'd at least acknowledge its contribution. 
Okay, so what's number also, seven? Well, we'll do six quickly. Let's also acknowledge the 1962 Lotus 25, first yeah. monocoque F1 car. So rather than yeah. tubes using a monocoque, um, yeah. lighter, stronger. And again, you know, it, it was a revolution in Formula One, but Lancia were making monocoque road cars in the 1920s. Hmm. Um, in sports cars, you know, the D-Type had a semi-monocoque. Uh, and yet, you know, they were in Formula One, they're using these spindly little space frames, um, which were not only nothing like as, as, as torsionally rigid as a monocoque. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, okay, those early monocoques weren't terribly safe, but they're an awful lot safer than a, than a space frame. So they're just, you know, so, you know, the monocoque was, was stronger and stiffer and better. Yeah. Number seven, then. I, I want to talk about this one a little bit. Go on. This is the 1966 Lotus 43. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that, well, interesting for two reasons. But the first I want to talk about is that it used the engine as a stressed member. Um, it did. And this is... This is this goes back to something you mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago. One of the clever things about Chapman was that he was looking for ways to get individual components to do two jobs, because then you can make the car overall lighter. So it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You've got this enormous lump of metal in the car. It's heavy. It's yeah. strong. Why can't can't that also be a structural part so that you yeah. don't need um, so much structural stuff around it? Well, uh, you don't need that enormous subframe which usually had to carry it. Yeah, so it's yeah. a it's a clever idea, very clever idea. Yeah, uh, and, and also I particularly wanted that in there because um, most people think it was Lotus Forty Nine uh, in the following year, nineteen sixty seven, which was the first yeah. to do it. It wasn't. Um, the Forty Three did it, um, and then actually, um, yeah, it's just you know, it, it seems obvious now, doesn't it? But they just hadn't thought of it until then. So, um, mm. and I presume you want to talk a bit about the engine itself. I do. I mean, it's worth saying that um, the the engine that most people think was the first dressed um, member was the Cosworth DFV, isn't it? In the, in the, the all-conquering yeah. DFV. But actually, yeah. this the Lotus Forty Three did it um, before then, and but it used the H sixteen engine. Um, I can't quite get my head around what that looks like. If you look at animations, and they're they're online, you can find them. It it sort of explains it a little bit more. But you've got 16 cylinders, what, and two lots of eight, but they sit on top of each other and... Yeah, so, so basically, actually, and, and now I'm thinking about it, um, I, th- I think the car and the engine were sort of more of, um, of BRM's, um, well, the engine was certainly a BRM engine. Um, yeah. BR- B- BRM have... Um, <laughs> uh, they've always... They were always very innovative and, um, and sometimes like the V16 BRM. Uh, of 1949 when it made its debut um, was great in theory and terrible in practice uh, and the H16 so the H16 basically was there was a new three litre formula um, and BRM at the time for the previous formula the one and a half litre formula had an amazingly successful really good V8 and so someone thought okay so we've got a one and a half litre eight cylinder engine and hmm. now we need a three litre engine so that's double the capacity so why not just use two of them uh, and mount them in such a way. And basically, they flattened out the V8. Well, they took a lot of the internal components and, 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 and the design philosophy from their one and a half litre V8 and turned it into this H16, which was basically two engine, eight-cylinder engines, one sitting on top of the other. How they geared it to the crankshaft and everything, I have no idea. Um, mm. But it is, as far as I'm aware, the one and only 
H16 engine or H formation engine that there has ever been. And given that it was incredibly heavy, not very reliable and used vast amounts of fuel, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, so it's not, I mean, there must have been two flat engines, 280 yeah. degree engines, because yeah. there have been X engines as well. And you can imagine those two Vs. Yeah, they've been the used those. They used those in uh, aircraft, certainly. Mm. Um, the predecessor to the Avril Lancaster was a thing called the Manchester, which is which looks like a Lancaster with only two engines, um, and that had an an enormous X formation twenty four cylinder engine, which was two V twelves, uh, one oh upside down uh, and sharing a common crank. Um, but that didn't work, um, and mm. so they decided to do one with four engines and conventional V12s and the Lancaster was the result. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Lotus 43, it, it definitely didn't work. That was a flop. Um, and there's a lovely line here. The first sign of trouble was when the H16 engine arrived and it required four men to lift it from the truck. You can just imagine <laughs> them picking up going, oh no. Uh, okay, <laughs> yes. We may have a problem. Um, I was surprised to see the Porsche 917 on your list. Only because um, we are talking about regulations and getting around them and that sort of thing. Um, there was nothing particularly, um, and Porsche actually, they didn't. They Porsche very rarely did anything for the first time. Um, sorry, they were very rarely the first to do something for the first time. Um, and there's nothing. I mean, the nine one seven was more powerful. It was lighter. It was faster. It took existing technology to absolute extremes but there was no there was no individual technology on it which hadn't been done before the reason i stuck it on the list was that it was created to defy rules that came into existence precisely to stop a car like that ever to be ever being created so you know back in the late, late 1960s cars were getting faster and faster and faster you're getting these incredibly exotic prototypes like seven liter four gt40s and ferrari p4s um and they were getting more and more powerful. They're getting faster and faster, which meant they became more and more dangerous. Um, they became much more difficult for any team of conventional means to to oppose. And so they decided that there was going to be this new set of regulations and that you had to build 50 cars to be able to race it. That was then later reduced to 25. And the moment Porsche thought, thought they thought 50, okay, fine. You know, there's nothing we do about that. But 25? Mm. And they just thought, sod it, Let's we'll build, build them. them. And mm. so a kind of car which in previous you know, years would only, you know, they might have only, I mean, Ferrari, the P4 is a good example. Ferrari, I built, there were some P3s that were converted. I think they actually, but I think genuine 330 P4 Ferraris, I think they built three. Okay, so imagine that was, the, that was kind of the level you think, okay, the most we can do with this kind of car is three because they're mm. so expensive and they're so complicated and they're so exotic. And Porsche go, okay, we'll do 25. Yeah, it's a huge and there's step. That isn't there? There's that photograph, isn't there, of them all lined up outside Vysak mm. with the inspectors coming to inspect them, um, because that was the thing you had to. You couldn't just intend to. You couldn't say, oh, "Yeah, we'll do it. Here's one. We'll do another 24." You had to. You had to do it before you could race any of them. And so Porsche built these 25 cars. Um, I think they then very swiftly unbuilt 24 of them. Um, because they were literally just thrown together for the inspectors and then had to rebuild them properly. But nevertheless, the cars were there. And I just thought that's such a good example of, you know, of just thinking we're not going to be beaten by the regulations. And, yeah. Yeah, and once they'd done it, 
even though this car was even faster and even more exotic and even more exactly the kind of car that they were trying to stop being built. Once they'd done it and their 25 cars was, you know, were parked in a line, couldn't stop it racing. No. And we know what happened next. And, you know, fair play. Yeah, finding a way through that regulatory net. That's yeah. what this is all about. Um, okay, so I'm looking at the next few on your list. We have spoken recently about the Brabham fan car. Um, we've yep. spoken in the past about the Tyrrell P34 six wheels. Um, let's have... Do you want to talk about the Lotus 72 or the Chaparral 2J? Okay, well, Lotus 72 um, was a great piece of design. I'm not going to go on about it for long. Um, the particular innovation on that was... You remember all the Grand Prix cars? Um, they look like... those Of the 60s, they have those wonderful cigar tube shapes mm. with those big, rounded, open noses. Um, not aerodynamic, particularly friendly. For the 72, the idea was, and they had to be like that because there was the radiator at the front. Um, and for the 72, the idea was put the radiators at the sides. You then take an awful lot of mass out the front of the car, which is exactly where you don't want it. Uh, and suddenly you can have that shovel nose, which is just so much more efficient at addressing mm. the air. Um, and it's not one of those sort of great Chapman innovations that gets talked about in the same way that people talk about monocoques or stressed engines or ground effect. Um, but actually, you know, the Lotus 72, the first race in 1970, it was still racing in 1975. It did six seasons, won two world championships. Um, <laughs> pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, Indeed. So actually, I think it actually did three constructors because I think Lotus won the constructors of 73. I might be wrong about that. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to do that. Um, and the Chaparral 2J, <laughs> you, you, people probably will have seen this. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and look at a photograph. And if you've ever been to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, you probably Is will. Is it the one with the two big fans on the back? Exactly, yeah. 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 So this was, this, this was kind of the idea um, in very, very basic terms. Gordon Murray will hate me for saying this, but uh, because the, the Brabham fan car was a completely different concept. But nevertheless, the idea of using fans to remove the air from underneath a, um, the car to literally suck it to the ground, um, that was pioneered by the Chaparral 2J. Um, and unlike the Brabham, which used the engine to power the fan, um, the Chaparral was actually, the fans on the back of the Chaparral were actually powered by Skidoo engines, I think. I think they were snowmobile engines. Um, but yeah, it sealed itself to the ground. It sucked all the air out and the car was literally suctioned to the ground. Um, and I think it was incredibly quick, but just not reliable. Uh, and so it never really came to anything. It never. It was a Can-Am car. Uh, in 1970, when McLaren were just winning everything with um, with the M8, when would it be the M8D? Um, but I mean, briefly, it would have co- caused everyone to think, "Oh, blimey!" Um, but actually, it, it never came to anything. But and then, I mean, probably the ugliest racing car there's ever been, particularly <laughs> yes. from the back. But but wow, what an idea! Fantastic yeah, innovation, indeed. Um, okay, I'm going to skip us forward a couple of decades. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Williams FW14B. Um, it perfected active suspension and traction control, um, and it was utterly dominant. Won 10 out of 16 races. It won the title, the 92 title for Mansell. And Nigel Mansell was on pole for all but two races um, that season, which is amazing. It just shows how quick that thing was. And that active suspension was all about a stable aero platform, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was, and you know, and and that uh, we we we've always skipped past the Lotus eighty eight, but that was that was the same idea, um, which was that you have you know the Lotus eighty eight. The idea was that you need a, a platform which doesn't move, 
um, for the aero, but one which does for the mechanical grip. And so they had two, two chassis for that. Um, and, and then Active effectively created, did, did that a different way, didn't it? Um, and so you could, provide, you, you could provide a car which addressed the air in a completely consistent way. Um, but because the suspension was incredibly clever, it didn't beat up the driver, so the driver could actually use it. Because the problem with the old ground effect era... Uh, you could you know, you could get that you could get a complete stable pipe by just putting incredibly stiff springs on the cars, but then the cars became undrivable in in nineteen where was it nineteen seventy nine with the Lotus eighty. Um, they had two and a half thousand pound springs, um, and their test driver, who's a bloke I think called Stephen South, um, at one test brought the car in and said, "I can't drive the car because I cannot hold my feet, my feet on the pedals. They were just being bounced off the pedals." So yeah, uh, Active made all that go away um, and. It was just an example of Williams just doing it so much better than anybody else, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And but did it get banned? Is that what ultimately no. happened? No, well, when the technology got banned, no, the Williams didn't get banned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and then cars became completely analog, didn't they? But no, I mean, mm. you know, you know, it, it continued, and it certainly continued in '93 because. You remember um, Senna winning in the wet at Donington in 93. That was a fully active car in the McLaren. Um, so yeah. I can't remember how many seasons it lasted. Someone will be able to tell us. Um, but it was certainly, you know, they had to wait for a rule change to, um, for it. To, I, I wouldn't say it was bad. I would say it was, you know, the rules just kind of, you know, progressed beyond it. And the car certainly wasn't bad, even if the technology was. Um, I'm just going to quickly list some of the others that you had on your list. Uh, but I want to move on to the, the flops because they're quite amusing. Um, you had the 1997 McLaren the MP412, um, which had the the, the second brake pedal. Um, yes. Which which the drivers could squeeze. Was it on the way in or was it on the way out? Was it to pivot the car or was it to aid traction? There's a, there's a little Pass. bit of uncertainty about that. Yeah. Yeah, but it, but it was effectively a form of um, driver-operated uh, torque vectoring. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it came to light when... Um, the photographer, Darren, photographer Darren Heath, yeah, he's yeah. one of the cars broke down, didn't it? And he stuck his camera in the in the cockpit, the footwell. took a shot, yeah. and found three there pedals. It was. Yeah, yeah, and it, it confused everyone. Um, you also had we've already mentioned the Braun double diffuser, haven't we? And the McLaren F duct, um, yeah, Mercedes dual axis steering. So just very quickly, the F duct was so clever um, because the rule was you couldn't have a movable aerodynamic device on the car. And so the aerodynamic device that moved on the car was the driver. And it was the leg or the elbow, wasn't it? Depending which car it was, um, which blocked this duct, which stalled the air, which made the car go like, I think they went like sort of thick and 10 miles an hour faster down the straight as a result. Um, I just thought I get that. To me, that is just such an incredibly clever piece of lateral thinking. It reminds me of another, and I'll be really quick about this, but the 911 RSR, when that came out, um, that had um, torsion beam, torsion bar springs, uh, the 911 did, and you had to retain the original springing medium when what Porsche really wanted was coilovers. And so they suddenly realised, the rule said that while you had to retain the original springing medium, it didn't have to do anything. So they <laughs> left the old springs in there and then put coilovers in instead. So they're still, they're still there, torsion bars, still there. we have retained the original springing medium. They're not doing anything, but they're still there. Also, genius. Genius. That's just proper interpretation of the regulations, isn't it? It's what designers are supposed yeah. to do. And somebody else, who was it? Was it Porsche again? A car had to have a place where you could put a spare tyre. 
And they produced a car which had no space for it. And someone said, where do you put the spare tyre? And they went, in the fuel tank. <laughs> because the fuel tank was big enough to accommodate a spare tyre. And again, the rules hadn't said you, you had to be able to do it. You just had to provide a space big enough to house one. There you go. And they did. I um, love all that stuff. Okay. <laughs> Flops. We've done a few yes. flops, but we'll do a couple more. Um, the 1978 Brabham BT46. Now, this one I can't really get my head around. You, if you can, you might have to explain the well, technology I think it's quite a little bit. Actually, okay. I th- I so no well, radiators. I mean, no radiators. No oil radiators. No water radiators. Uh, this was what this was. Um, one of I'd be love to hear what Gordon's view of this is. Uh, this was the 46, which also was the fan car. Went went into so the 46 had a fairly extraordinary life. It was a conventional racing car. It was a fan car. And they tested this thing called surface cooling. Uh, and the idea was, um, can you imagine how much weight and bulk uh, and how much more aerodynamic a car would be if it didn't need any radiators? Mm. And so the idea was that you take the radiators away and that, you would, and, the, and that the surfaces of the cars would effectively be heat exchangers uh, instead. And so you would have an entirely air-cooled car. Um, and it didn't work. Great idea. <laughs> just didn't work. But Did the, 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 the car, they ran it, um, and it never raced. Um, mm. So, you know, um, so I read somewhere that it only provided like 30% of the cooling capacity that was required, but that may not be true. Oh. But um, lovely idea. So actually, you do need radiators. You, in a so. racing car, there's just so much yeah. demand for cooling that you need proper radiators exactly. to, to do it. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to talk about the Aston Martin AMR1, not the Group C car. This is the 2011 oh. ProDrive LMP1 car. Um, yeah. It replaced that wonderful V12 coupe, the DBR12. Gorgeous thing. Yes. So, no. so we'll, we'll, still, we'll, we'll, be, we'll still be being on the flops here then. Oh, absolutely. This is the floppiest of flops. Um, now, there's no particular individual innovation going on here. Like you suggested, like you said, with one of the earlier cars, everything here had been done already, but this is, this, it was an unusual technical makeup for the category nonetheless it was a very different approach to everybody else absolutely um, and so it was all about being light and efficient and slippery so it had an open top um, the Peugeot and Audi LMP1 cars were closed they decided that was the way to go Aston Martin wanted to try something different um, and it had a downsized very small two litre turbo straight six petrol um, so it had completely different to the other cars it was racing up against. Um, what was a straight six before that last used in a racing car? Poor. I mean, 50s? Really? You know, at a top level, well, 50s. I mean, I can't think of one uh, because the problem with a straight six is, 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 is that it's very long. Um, mm. and, and not all uh, that rigid either, is it? I think they, not, not, not that it, rigid, and you, and, and you get crankshaft, you know, uh, yeah. problems with you know stopping the crankshaft flailing around, and yeah, but but the idea was to create an incredibly efficient aero platform, I, I presume. Yeah. With this very long, thin engine, which didn't get in the way of the airflow in the same way that a V engine would, mm. and something that would be easy on tyres. Um, yeah. So you know they had this whole sort of strategy around this car, but. I do remember, I don't know who it was, but I do remember one of the other LMP1 team bosses later saying that they knew the basic concept was flawed, that it couldn't be competitive. Um, I think it was Beretsky. I think it was Ulrich Beretsky, the Audi engineer bloke who really? said that. Yeah, and that I makes think sense. I, th- I, th- I think he was quite scathing about it. I think he said, mm. I seem to recall him saying, 
this concept can't work and there's nothing you can do to it that might make it work for worst what? of that effect ouch yeah. um, and I, I mention it now because back in 2011 I knew someone who worked at Ilmore um, who were involved in the development of the straight six engine not publicly I don't think there's a great deal on record about this um, but I had no months, idea they'd been involved yeah months before Le Mans that year he was telling me it was going to be a disaster um, the engine and guess what happened um, it was a disaster the number 9 car retired after 2 laps and the number yeah. 7 car it spent 4 hours in the pits but it only covered 4 laps both with engine problems it's just amazing that someone was telling wasn't me months also, before wasn't there something else wasn't there like a duff batch of pulleys or something there was something that's, that, that's, was, that's was right the... yeah they had alley pulleys and they replaced them with tougher steel ones but that just sent the the issues that they had further downstream. Further down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh, yeah, and I've forgotten about that. Yeah. And then that car was quickly binned, wasn't it? Um, Very. Okay. Well, unless there were any others that are leaping out at you on your list that you don't have in front of you, I think we'll <laughs> move on. Um, no, fine. Well, so last, last week was episode 100, and we, it was a bit different, wasn't it? We just took listeners' questions. Um, yeah. And it went down well. People enjoyed it, so... What we've decided to do, and this was your idea, is answer at least one listener question at the end of every episode. Um, I mean, we've, we've still got a whole load that we didn't manage to get through last week, but we want new questions. Just keep them coming in. Um, however you want to send them, if you want to email us or send us a note on social media, whatever, just, we just want interesting questions. Um, and that's how we're going to end each episode of the podcast from now on. Um, before we do that, I just want to say thank you all for listening please remember to rate and review the podcast. That's really important. And also subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. That makes a huge difference. It, actually, it's the, the main um, mechanism by which podcasts grow and find a new audience. So please help us do that. Um, and also check out the Intercooler app. You can start your one-month free trial right away. Um, but we're going to end this week's episode with a question from Huff755. It's an expansive one. Um, we'll we won't spend ages on do, it. Because I have literally <laughs> no idea what you're about to say. That's fine. That's good. I've, done some, I've got some notes here. So I've got my answer. You'll be able to do it off the top of your head. He says, what for you makes a car fun to drive? Oh, we need an entire podcast. In fact, we've done an entire podcast on it. I mean, it's, I mean how long have you got? Um, ultimately, the single most important factor in making any car fun to drive is the car's ability to execute the instructions of its driver instantly and accurately. And for that, you need all sorts more. You need a car, particularly which is light. Um, you need a car which is beautifully engineered uh, by people who really understand it. And if you think of all the great drivers' cars, they do that. Uh, but there, there, are, there are other things too, obviously. You know, you need um, a great deal of feel. Um, but it comes down to confidence, doesn't it? You know, you will not enjoy a car, however fast it is, whatever its figures are, however much power it has, if it doesn't give you confidence to go and drive it fast, you will not enjoy driving it fast. Um, and that is why, you know, certain cars with very little power can be wildly more fun than certain other cars costing 10 times as much with 10 times the power. Yep, good. Um, and assuming that we're talking about on the road... Um, yeah, you're suddenly looking at a totally different set of characteristics to if we were talking about the track. And I would add that uh, we've you've said weight, also compact size, 
but the right amount of grip, by which I mean not too much grip, um, and a level of performance that you can actually use, because there are few things more frustrating in a performance car on the public road than bundles and bundles of grip that you can't get anywhere near the limit of, and a huge amount of performance that you can only deploy for a couple of seconds at a time. So I think the right level of grip, the right amount of performance, um, but also dynamic sensation. So you spoke about feel, getting feel from a car, but also I want, I want a car to feel a bit alive underneath me, and I want it to sort of rise and fall over the shape of the road. I do want it to lean a bit in corners, because if a car is just completely clamped down, you don't really feel anything. You're just aware of how quickly you're getting along the road. I prefer to feel the car sort of moving around underneath me. And also, particularly in the case of a front-wheel drive hot hatch, and the Fiesta ST is the best example of this, what's so enjoyable about that car is its balance and how mobile the rear axle is without being just sort of wantonly oversteery. The instant you turn that car into a corner, you find that you're just taking the steering lock off again because the car is steering as much from the rear as the front. And it's, it's a lovely sensation. And that, for me, is why that car is one of the most enjoyable road cars at any price. Excellent. I reckon we've answered that one. Yep, great. Good. Okay, well, yeah, keep your questions coming in, and we'll just pick a good one every week. Um, I've done my calls to action, as they're known, so all that's left for me to say is thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast. Their details are in the caption below. Um, and we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. Look forward to it. All the best.